Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We sharply digress. David Rubenstein joins us. The Carlyle Group on fire with some recent interviews, of course, peer-to-peer conversations with Mr. Rubenstein. And I really want to focus on the hockey player from Belmont Hill. For those of you that aren't in the know, that is really good prep school hockey. And then on to Princeton and ROTC. David Rubenstein, the path of General Miley to the top of the Pentagon pecking order was most original, wasn't it? It was. Uh, we've never had a person serve as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who had an undergraduate degree from an Ivy League school. Um, he didn't expect to spend his entire career in the military, but it worked out that way. And he's from a military family, but I, interestingly, his father did not want him to go into the military. Yeah. His father really tried to, to keep him out of the military. How is he colored and his service colored in infantry by the fact that his father truly was on the shores of Iwo Jima? Well, his father was a, a real combat veteran in the South uh, Pacific in World War II, but his father knew the horrors of military combat, and he tried to keep his son from going to West Point. Uh, he went to Princeton uh, on a hockey scholarship, effectively a hockey scholarship, and, uh, but he got into ROTC and ultimately stay, stayed in the military. Uh, it's an unusual story, and he's obviously become one of the most visible of all the uh, chairmen of Joint Chiefs of Staff because of things that happened during the Trump administration. David, China was very much front and center with this interview, as it rightly should be, according to many people out there. What is the different nature of this rivalry, of this potential Cold War, given the fact that the strategic nature is that China, frankly, provides so much to the United States by way of goods? General Milley said that the biggest security threat to this country is China. Now, historically, when I was growing up, it was Russia. And Russia is still a threat, he said. And, of course, there's North Korea. But in the end, China has the, the, uh, the money and the manpower and the technology skills to really be a complete rival to us. And he was very worried about the hypersonic missile for which there was a test not long ago. Now, we probably, presumably are developing our own hypersonic missile. It's not been discussed publicly. But this is a missile which could um, launch a nuclear weapon on us without any real defense that we currently have. So how separate are the military concerns that the United States has with respect to China from the business concerns, especially as a growing number of corporations in America are trying to increase their footprints in Beijing, in the mainland? Well, the business community, I think, is interested in getting all those customers and, and developing relationships in China. But we have to be very careful in the business community because we recognize that China is uh, now making it more difficult for American companies to invest there or operate there, uh, certainly more difficult than it was a couple years ago. The military is more concerned about China as a threat and less interested in getting into China than making certain that China doesn't get into the United States. David, in talking to the general and also within your own international view, one of the great missed calls that you and I and everyone else had was our dearth of intelligence on Russia when the Soviet Union collapsed. Do we actually have good intelligence on the Chinese military? I think our intelligence is probably not as good as people would like it to be. 
I, I don't really know the intelligence community's uh, assessment. I, I think our ability to know what's going on in North Korea is very, very limited. I think our ability to know what's going on in China is probably better, but not necessarily with the Chinese military, because uh, it's difficult to infiltrate, and so you have to rely on, on uh, technology and things like that, and sometimes that's hard to mm -hmm. get technology that's going to pick up exactly what's going on in China. As you point out, we underestimated exactly uh, some things that were happening in Russia, and we overestimated other things that were happening in Russia, and we've had a lot of technology failures in, 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 in uh, the Middle East with their inability to know what was really going on in Iraq, for example. And David, it's so important that Tom asked that question because it really dovetails the two issues of the business community and the military community. How do you get visibility? Well, there are people who are represent the United States in some way, shape, or form on the ground there. How much is this a concern for business executives you speak with in terms of how much surveillance they're under, what type of uh, regulation there might be from the United States <laughs> government because of that suspicion that they are the node of information one way or another? Well, the business community has been warned that it, as it operates in China, everything could be bugged and everything could be um, stolen away in terms of intellectual property. The business community is wary about dealing with things in China, but on the other hand, there are a lot of customers there and there's a lot of businesses there, so people are warned. They try to be careful, but nobody can be perfect right. in terms of our ability to protect uh, certain information. David, with your success, and I, and I mention this, folks, because this peer-to-peer -peer conversation occurs in front of our three most important documents at the National Archive. David, you brought the Magna Carta to America, the 1297 document itself. Tell us a little bit about that quickly. What was it like to gift to America the Magna Carta? Well, there are 17 extant copies of the Magna Carta, 15 in British institutions, one in the Australian Parliament. This was the only one in private hands, and I put it there on permanent display and uh, permanent loan, and essentially it's a, a document that was a forerunner of the Declaration of Independence. So it really, in many ways, had more impact in this country than, ironically, it did in England. That's why I thought it should stay here. Unbelievable to see that at the National Archive. And of course, folks, you can see it at the British Library. John, I know you've done that. The British Library Museum, just extraordinary. Wonderful. Love it there. David, thank you. Thank you so much. David thank Rubenstein you. there. Catch the full interview, a fascinating interview with General Milley on the David Rubenstein Show. Peer-to-peer -peer conversations. Whether Democrat or Republican, one thing I know for certain is later in the Trump administration, all agreed that the gentleman, the movie producer from Goldman Sachs, rose to the occasion. He is the former Chancellor of the Exchequer of the United States, and he is in Riyadh. Yusuf Gamal Aldin uh, joins us now with a conversation with Chancellor Mnuchin. Yusuf, good morning. Hey, Tom. I mean, for once, it's not all happening in New York. People from all around the world, CEOs and government officials, have come out here to Riyadh. And one of them, of course, is Steve Mnuchin. He's the founder at Liberty Strategic Capital. Thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Secretary. Give me a, a bit of an overview then of the kind of meetings you've been having and whether you've been able to secure any new deals. Well, first of all, it's great to be with you and it's great to be back in the region. Uh, my focus here is really to be supportive to the economic transformation in the region. Uh, it, it's, it's very important, I, I think, for economic stability that all these countries transform their economies and, and expand them away from just energy. You raised $2.5 billion in private equity investments. Uh, did some of it come from the likes of the public investment fund? Well, I can't really comment on our uh, raising of funds. What I can comment on is 
what we're focused in doing. So our real focus is right now on technology with a big emphasis on cybersecurity, national security, and data privacy, which was an area I focused on when I was Treasury Secretary. I was responsible for cyber, for all the financial services, and it's a very big risk. So we want to make sure that companies and governments are, are taken care of and protected. Let's get to the macro story for a moment. Uh, because the last time you discussed inflation, you said you were worried. Uh, now, quite a bit more data has come through. How has that view evolved since? Well, I was worried because I thought we'd see inflation. We have seen it. I think you know we're, we're running probably in the four to five percent inflation. My guess is we'll stabilize closer to three and a half, but that's that's still a significant issue. For a long time, the Federal Reserve was concerned that we couldn't get inflation up to two percent. But now, just given the enormous amount of fiscal and monetary support, uh, I am very concerned that we're going to see higher interest rates and the impact on consumers. And then 10-year Treasury yields, those still go to 3.5? Because that's what you said last time. That, that's, that's still my prediction. Okay. What about the ability of the United States to grow itself out of pre- and post-pandemic debt and the massive amounts of money that it's borrowed? Well, look, there's no question that during this crisis, we needed to have massive support. And I'm most proud of the fact that we passed two, the two CARES bills, 96 to zero and 100 to zero in, in the Senate. That was pretty extraordinary. Uh, we spent $4 trillion. I never thought I'd be saying those words, $4 trillion. I think we needed to spend that money or we would have had a global depression, not recession. But the, the new administration has continued to spend another $2 trillion, now more money. I'm very concerned about the size of the national debt at $28.5 trillion today. I worry it could go up to $32 trillion on a $23 trillion economy. It's quite concerning. I want to stay with the fiscal side of things for a moment because the Democrat tax plan has been controversial to some. Uh, the billionaire taxes, it's also called. Do you think that uh, it's a good plan, will it pass Congress? Well, let me just first say, I think now's the wrong time to raise taxes on anybody, whether it's billionaires or average consumers, and spend. I think we've done plenty of spending. I think the problem with the billionaire tax is, one, it probably won't raise much money, since a lot of this money will be given away to foundations, uh, so it won't be taxed. The other issue is it's probably unconstitutional. And the third issue is it creates very, very bad incentives. How do you tax public securities and not private securities? Think about this. It's a complete disincentive to grow your business, to basically say every year the government will take a little bit more of your business away. That's not the right incentive for long-term investing. Uh, a shout-out to Tom Keen for this question. Uh, he is looking to find an answer on whether there's going to be an opportunity for Republicans in 2022 and 2024 to reassert a calmer policy out of the present chaos. Out of what? The present chaos. Well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. It's, uh, it's, it's politics. You know, my guess is a lot of things will change over the next couple of years. Again, my biggest concern right now is we need less spending and we need to worry about making sure we don't have inflation out of control and the national debt is sustainable. Uh, we've seen a U.S. ban on a, on a China telco. Uh, in, in many ways, one would have thought that some of the tensions between China and the United States would ease a little bit with a new administration and a new approach. Clearly, that hasn't happened as fast or is not happening at all. Have you been surprised about how this has evolved? 
Well, let me just say, Ambassador Lighthizer and I spent a lot of time going back and forth to China. I think we probably had 20 different meetings with the Vice Premier, and I think we're proud of the work we did on the Phase One trade agreement. My own opinion is a lot work, more work needs to be done, that there should be more dialogue. Uh, as it relates to telecom, look, I think there's certain areas that are national security areas, uh, at least as it relates to certain telecom equipment, and I'm not commenting on the specific of this, we want to make sure that uh, our data integrity. On the other hand, these are two large economies that have to coexist, and I think the work needs to continue to be done on trade. China has always had the opportunity to have the U.S. markets open, and we need to make sure we have the same reciprocal opportunities. We have to leave it there. Thank you very much for the time. That's uh, Steve Mnuchin. He's the founder of Liberty Strategic Capital. Tom, the rest of the team. You, sir, you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, as always. Catching up with the former Treasury Secretary there, Stephen Mnuchin. To find out what industrial America is doing and what is so advantageous here is David Weston and I. We didn't look at the first generation Corvette. We looked at the second generation Corvette and said, someday we'll own one of those. And there's a new one. Too. You have I a have 60, a 62. I, I knew that. that. You know. <laughs> That's I'm sitting at home. Thank you so much to Tom Keene. We're delighted to be joined right now by General Motors Chair and CEO Mary Barra. They had their third quarter earnings out today. Mary, thank you for joining us. First of all, congratulations. You did a lot better than most people thought you'd do. I don't want to take anything away from that, but can you give us some sense of how much of that's core operations? How do that's some financing because of some used car sales that really were on a tear and also some reimbursement for that bolt recall? Well, I think uh, it was it was all of those things. I mean, GMF has performed very strongly. Uh, we also saw, you know, in light of uh, the current environment, uh, China, our China earning, equity earnings were strong. But I think what the real story is, is how, how well we perform from trucks and full-size SUVs. We're selling every vehicle we can make. And I think that, uh, along with, uh, uh, you know, the overall environment is what allowed us to have a beat for the quarter. And, uh, you know, I think it shows the strength of our underlying business. So, I'm really proud of the team and everything that they accomplished. So the magic words there for me were every one you can make because you can't necessarily make all the ones you'd like because of those supply chain problems. We've talked about it before. I know that it's continuing into next year. I guess my key question for you, Mary, is, is there anything at this point that can be done to speed up the time that you can get the microchips that you need? Well, uh, you know, we're seeing improvements um, in fourth quarter. We had indicated that uh, Q3 would be uh, the toughest for us, uh, which is, and that it was further impacted by COVID. But uh, we're seeing strong, a stronger performance now. Uh, we'll have a Q1 will be better than Q4. It will linger into next year, and we're um, right now our, our feeling is we'll be uh, in a much better shape in the second half of 2022. And we're also taking steps uh, over the medium term to make sure we're never seeing this kind of constraint, not only with chips, but with other, you know, whether it's critical materials or just the overall supply chain, because we have an aggressive growth strategy in front of us and we're going to make sure that we can execute it. So it's a very, it's a near-term problem um, that we'll work through. In the meantime, Mary, are there places you can save some costs? Let me give you one example, advertising. If you can't sell as many vehicles, maybe you don't need to advertise as much. 
Well, you know, Dave, it's a great point. We are uh, saving across the board. Uh, you know, we're, we're seeing st a strong pricing environment. Obviously, we're adjusting what we're doing to match, uh, you know, the fact that we're selling every, every vehicle that we can. But also through COVID and, and through this crisis uh, with semiconductors, we have found ways to make the business more efficient. We're working with our dealers to, uh, to drive uh, an increase in profitability for them, as well as improving our costs. And so across the board, we are always driving efficiency. And that, that's an underlying, uh, underlying strength of our organization, and that supports the strong earnings. Mary, let's talk about the perhaps longer term, and that's electric vehicles, something you've really embraced. You have some very aggressive goals for General Motors going out, electric vehicles. We had some big news this week from a rival, starts with a T, won't necessarily name it, with some big fleet sales, uh, particularly to Hertz. I know in the past you've been, I think, a little dubious about fleet sales because the margins get down. Where are you on fleet sales for electric vehicles? Are they different because you really want to get broad acceptance? Are you looking at fleet sales for electric vehicles? Well, you know, if you look at Bright Drop, um, you know, the commercial fleet uh, and what we can do from a, a light commercial vehicle perspective uh, with Bright Drop and, and the whole ecosystem that we'll support, I think, is a huge opportunity. And that's some of the most profitable uh, of fleet sales. We're uh, looking at many different opportunities because with electric vehicles, you can really kind of uh, re reframe um, how the, uh, the sales will be. And so uh, we're looking at a number of opportunities, but I think, um, you know, what we We've announced is around Bright Drop. I'm very excited about that because that's just pure growth for us. But, but as I understand it, we shouldn't rule out the possibility that down the road, General Motors might have a deal similar to Hertz deal. Well, you know, in the past, we have limited uh, rental cars because that generally was uh, the least profitable uh, type of fleet sales. As um, we reimagine how the business will look, um, we're not ruling anything out. Okay. And finally, Mary, we've talked a lot about back to the office. Since we talked last, there have been more and more vaccine mandates. Is that affecting General Motors operations? Do you anticipate it will? I don't think it will. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll work. We continue to encourage our employees to get the vaccine. We encourage, we continue to provide them the information, uh, you know, from CDC and other um, like organizations around the globe. And we're going to work um, to understand uh, how to implement the executive order uh, from the president, uh, but to do so in a way that uh, our employees and our unions uh, agree to. So when, once we know the details, we'll work the uh, execution plan, but I don't foresee it being an issue uh, for General Motors as we look at uh, our old overall labor availability. Yeah, you do have, a, obviously, a very important relationship with the UAW CIO. As you talk with them, do you see resistance coming from the union side to vaccine mandates? Well, I, I think that's a better question to ask, uh, ask the UAW. Uh, we're just working with them to provide information and encourage, encourage all of our employees to make the decision uh, with the right information. And that's what we'll continue to do. And then, again, we'll look at what the specifics are of the mandate and figure out how to, how to implement. At this point, we don't know where we are in the pandemic, but it seems like it's getting better again in the United States. Is it affecting GM operations either on the sales side or in the production side? Actually, uh, you know, we're the, the biggest impact that's uh, that's gating us right now, as we talked about, is semiconductors. But we've we've seen um, recovery from the impact in Q3 from some of our supply base that caused uh, a little bit uh, deeper um, impact. So I'm I'm optimistic that we are through the worst of it. Um, we've shared our safety protocols with our supply base around the world. So uh, that's what gives me confidence that we're going to see a stronger Q4 and then a stronger Q1 and uh, even uh, as we get to the second half of next year, 
uh, continued improvement. As you have that gating function, as you refer to it, Mary, with the semiconductors, uh, are you seeing inflation either in the cost you're paying for inputs or costs you can pass along to consumers? Well, we definitely are seeing uh, commodity prices increasing, as well as the cost of logistics, which I think is, uh, you know, impacting almost every industry. We're working and managing that right now. And, and again, because the, our product portfolio is so strong, I really believe it's the strongest cars, trucks and crossovers we've had in my 40 year career here at General Motors. And that's that's what is allowing us to also have very strong pricing and because we have strong receptivity from the customers. Okay, Mary, really appreciate you spending time with us today. That's Mary Barra. She's the General Motors Chair and CEO. David, thanks so much. We are looking at advanced goods trade balances that we've never imagined. We are out to a 96, negative $96 billion statistic, which I would respectively suggest Diane Swanker myself have never framed. Let's begin there. She is with Grant Thornton. Diane, we have not talked about net exports, exports, imports, but we have a goods trade balance unimaginable. What does that signal? Well, it's really strong demand in the United States relative to the rest of the world. That's just where we're at. And I think one of the interesting things is, of course, that it will subtract from growth in the third quarter, even as durable goods add to growth. And our investment um, that we're seeing out there is really the strongest in technology, intellectual property that we've seen since mm -hmm. the 1940s. So we'll get some productivity growth. But it really is going to be the weakest growth of the quarter, which we'll get out tomorrow, will be the third quarter, the weakest growth since the onset of the pandemic recovery. But of course, we're now starting to gain more traction again as the Delta wave fades. And we're seeing that already in some of the credit card data coming in right. for the month of October. And as we go into November, of course, the biggest constraint we're going to face out there is shortages and price hikes. Rebecca Patterson was on earlier and she would demand that we ask the economist Diane Swank, are we in a demand shock or a supply shock? Uh, Rebecca Patterson of Bridgewater says this is a demand shock. It's all of the above. I mean, there's no question there's a demand shock out there. And we've juiced that demand shock with the last round of stimulus checks. We've got a lot of excess savings that's being drained down. Much depends on how much we get the private sector to pick up the baton from the federal government as we get into the fourth quarter and into 2022 and see job gains pick up again after the Delta wave. I think that's going to happen. And that is hard for the Fed because even as year-on-year -year comparisons get to be more difficult, which means the inflation numbers should taper off a bit in 2022. I think they're going to be residually higher than the Fed is going to be comfortable with. And they're going to be in the tough position of determining whether or not the inflation that we're enduring in 2022 is, in fact, going to be more um, intractive, in get, get into the economy more. And I think that's something that they're going to have to act on. And my concern is that we do see companies out there doubling up on inventory doubling up on orders to hedge against what are these supply chain shocks. But that won't abate inflation until we get well into 2023. And that's just too long for the Fed to wait. Diane, let's get into the politics of the economics, because that's where it's going in Washington, D.C. The idea of the demand side shock versus the supply side shock is frankly squarely in the Republican talking points where they're saying it is because we passed these bills earlier in the year and last year that basically gave people checks that we're seeing the demand shock 
that we are seeing. How much is that really the issue versus just the, the difficulties in turning off an entire economy, turning it back on and expecting it to happen without friction? Well, I think, you know, it really is. This is, you know, friction upon reentry, as I call it, as the spaceship comes back in and you hope it doesn't um, burn up and the heat shields hold. It really is a lot of frictions, frictions in the labor market. We've seen that. I think we're going to see more workers come back into the labor force in the fourth quarter. But the bottom line is you can't expect to turn off a global economy and then just ramp it back up overnight. And in fact, many producers expected when we turn the lights off back in March of 2020, in the U.S. at least, some countries before that, that it would take quite a while for us to ramp back up. And because we supported spending as we needed to, as we paid people to go home from work, that ended up creating a very unusual dynamic out there. And it's just not, not to be surprised that we're going through this. That said, it's really hard to disentangle the politics from the economics. Economics are really all of the above. We are having a demand shock because consumers couldn't spend on certain things. And then when they can, they're all trying to run through the door at the same time. You see surge pricing on hotels and airfares the minute consumers come back. We've had a lot of disruptions out there in addition to climate change and extreme weather events. Everyone forgets Hurricane Ida exacerbated the rise in prices at the pump in well, October. And adding to all of this confusion, Diane, you're talking about friction upon re-entry. When do we know that we've entered, right? When do we know? Uh, what signals, economic signals, do you look at to know that we have reached some sort of new normal rather than just the waiting period for everything to equalize. Well, that's you know the, the million dollar or billion trillion dollar question. We have to keep going up on our numbers. I think quadrillion is the next one after this one. I actually had to look it up. But um, there's no question that what we're looking for is some kind of a sort of stabilizing in underlying inflation pressures, um, not as broad-based inflation increases. I think one of the things we're going to have to be dealing with in 2022 is the lags on shelter, and that could add a half percent to underlying inflation measures alone. So even as some of the energy price and the, the surge pricing that we're seeing right now as we get that friction going and the real heat that singes, that will cool down, but not enough to sort of leave the Fed on the mm -hmm. sidelines. I really don't think we're going to see anything about what this economy really is like outside of a pandemic and into an endemic until we get into 2023, because we're talking about not even being yeah. able to vaccinate the world, which is key here until well into 2022. Diane, what is so important here? And you've been, you've really had truly national leadership on this. Is don't forget the third coast. It's all about the East Coast, the West Coast, and there's one big flyover, including frankly O'Hare and Chicago. Diane Swank, that's a bunch of baloney. What is the tech revolution right now in the third coast of America, away from Amazon, away from Microsoft? What's a tech revolution uh, look across the four time zones? You know, actually, we are seeing a major tech spread out across the country. And this is really interesting to see what's going on. You're seeing tech hubs in places like Boise, you know, really exactly. unusual places to see it. Charlotte, Austin, obviously. But we also have some in Chicago. It's really been stunning to see what's going on here and where the real high-end building and high-end uh, housing is going up and high-end construction for office space is tech-related. And so what you're seeing is some of that tech being spread across the nation and what we 
we've really seen is the pandemic accelerate the digitization of the U.S. economy. You're seeing that in the car industry, the electric cars coming out, not just from Tesla, but also from the traditional automakers with a lot more options out there. This movement is on. In fact, they're worried about how, how they're going to get um, dealers to sell electric vehicles. Well, it's not part of the, the model. The bottom line is demand is driving some of the movement on electric vehicles and dealers models are being outdated as we've moved to now buy online, even cars and homes. It really is a different world. Of course, that digitization also creates big gaps and inequalities. People who are trying to apply for jobs aren't used to being able to apply, having to apply totally online, which is where all the jobs are listed now. And they're in broadband dead zones. We really need to expand broadband to be able to increase the access of those people who need jobs and better match them up to where people who don't have, uh, to people who are looking for workers. That's difficult as well, both in urban and rural areas. So this really is a massive change that the pandemic accelerated, and I think it will deliver a lot of productivity growth. The problem is it's not evenly distributed. The brilliant Diane Swank of Grant Thornton. Diane, looking forward to catching up again next week, hopefully, around that Fed decision. Diane, thank you. Joining us now with, without question, our interview of the day is the skeptic one Douglas Cass of Seabreeze Partners. And Doug, the class act you are, you not only quote Thomas Lee, who's nailed this bull market surge, but you say, look, this is where Tom Lee is. This is why Tom Lee's right. And boy, have I been wrong. Now what for Doug Cass? You know what the dude said in The Big Lebowski? <laughs> sometimes you eat the bar and, well, sometimes the bar eats you. Yeah, but you're in the bright. Uh, Doug, I'm not going to mince words here. Everybody else is out there being quiet. You're like a pinata out on social because you've got the courage to be vocal, invisible about your convictions. Now yeah, what? I, I do. I'm very straightforward. Um, I would say that you know, there's the English translation of a Chinese curse. May we live in interesting times. And, and I do believe that we live in the most interesting times of all. Um, you know, I'm bearish on the market. I think that the conditions that exist in the real economy or on Main Street have diverged widely from Wall Street. And it's happening at a time in which valuations based upon historical metrics, such as uh, my friend Robert Schiller's keep ratio or the market cap to GDP, which is Warren Buffett's favorite um, valuation metric, are all in the 95th or even 100th decile. And at the core of my bearish market view is the notion that inflation and supply chain disruptions will be sustained for a lengthy period of time. Now, I'm long and I'm buying cannabis stocks, but investors are smoking dope if they think the <laughs> supply chain issues are easily solv solvable. And as I said to John Farrow a bunch of times, Paul, Who? market optimism <laughs> abounds, even though there has really been such a wide array of possible economic and market outcomes, and many of those outcomes are adverse and market unfriendly. But when I talk about interesting times, I'm talking about the gamification of the market. Right. Um, speculation is hot, 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 and that is not good, good, good. Um, I'm sure Robinhood, which is the premier gamer trading site, but when, but it really has become a floating crap game for speculation and digital currencies, meme stocks, and weekly option trading. Investing, it seems to me, Tom, has increasingly yeah. become 
passe. Well, let's get Paul to jump in here with some securities analysis. Doug, just wondering here, we're about almost two-thirds away through the earnings reporting cycle here for the third quarter. What have you learned that's kind of reinforced or maybe caused you to question your call? Uh, I think that there's a lot of double ordering. Um, I think um, uh, rates are going to be rising. Uh, I think that the product price increases, which are occurring at every single company that I interview, um, um, will lead to demand destruction. Um, you know, I find that w- I use the word s- slugflation, sluggish <laughs> economic growth and sustained inflation, not stagflation. And that's what I, I think slugflation uh, lies ahead. Um, I recognize that, I, I think that the, um, expansion in negative real interest rates has been at the core of a lot of bullish arguments. I think you guys will both agree. And I recognize that negative real interest rates are a tailwind to equities, but the fact is that expanding negative real interest rates cripples Main Street by reducing real incomes. And there have been periods of time when negative real interest rates have led to market collapses. Um, the U.S. stock market in the earlier mid-70s um, is a good example when the Nifty 50 collapsed and the S&P entered a bear market. Japan is another example in which real interest rates had been negative for several decades and investment returns have been poor. Uh, I've been wrong right. because I've under, understated the herd's strength. I've understated uh, the strength of FOMO and the inflow of money into mutual fund and uh equity mutual funds, as well as the changing market structure in which quant strategies that know everything about price and nothing about value. Right. Doug, how about the the Federal Reserve? We've got uh, Chairman Powell, you know, sticking to that inflation is transitory. Is this going to be a problem for him and for this Fed? I think it's a big problem. I think he's um, put himself into a box. I think Powell's legacy uh, seems to be moving in the wrong direction. In the months ahead, I expect him to walk back all the views of easing money and wanting higher inflation that he so confidently espoused. And again, I think if you look at twos and thirties, there's clear message from the bond market. If you look at the five-year break-evens, which hit the highest level since 2005, the Fed is making a policy mistake. Already there have been over 20 rate hikes globally in Russia, Brazil, UK, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, Mexico, nothing from the Fed. Um, So this is... This is a danger, yeah. dangerous precedent at a time yeah. in which I believe the rate of growth in economic okay. activity um, is going to be decelerated. We're, we're going to keep the names out of this, but this is a really important conversation. It's well known that if Cass gets the Robinhood trade right, he will click in to be one of the 700 billionaires yep. uh, in America. Yeah, Doug, you live down in one of the fanciest parts of the planet. I mean, you know, I think you've got the littlest house within six miles and you've got like 8,000 square I feet. I live in the shadow of uh, the former president. So yeah, I mean, I mean, Doug, literally, you live where we're talking about this billionaire's tax. You and I know these guys are writing as a generalization, big checks to hospitals, to schools, this, that, and the, I wish they'd write me a check. But the bottom line is, Doug, what's your gut feeling the people you hang out with every day will do if they're told they're going to have confiscation of gains not taken? How's that going to play out? Well, um, 
let's first start on the fact, let's look at Elon Musk. I'm going to answer your question in, directly, but let me first mention that um, the speculation in Tesla is an example of the problem in this market. Um, to paraphrase Hyman Roth, what he said in the Godfather movie, Elon Excuse me, Elon Musk is far bigger than U.S. Steel. His net worth now exceeds that of Exxon Mobil, and his wealth is two and a half times that of Jeff Bezos, my favorite stock, Amazon. And if Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg were married, their combined assets will be less than Musk's. And now I'm going to give you an amazing stat. Please. Musk has made more money in the last nine months than Warren Buffett has made in 91 years. Um, I share now directly in response to your question. I shared an anecdote. I hope Lee Cooperman doesn't get pissed off at me that I mention it. Um, I spent two and a half hours with Lee um, in a research meeting of a company that we're both interested who flew in overseas to see us yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lee lives in a very um, Tony community filled with Rolls Royces, Ferraris and Bentleys. Yeah. We, move, we go out to get our cars. The parking attendant brings Lee's car. It's a six-year-old Nissan. Lee is a person that has just given $100 million to St. Barnabas Hospital in New Jersey. Lee justifiably would rather give the money to the charities and to the endeavors that he wants vis-a-vis the government, which tends to spend uh, the monies poorly. So I'm a progressive um, I'm a progressive Democrat, uh, but I lean uh, away from Elizabeth Warren's suggestion of a wealth tax. Doug, we're out of time. We could go on on this. And, of course, you're in the market. I want to thank you particularly for your comment on the bull Thomas Lee within the Doug Cast report this morning with Seabreeze Partners. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.